everybody. Welcome back to Dog Backwards, where we look at life, faith, and theology from a different angle. I promise you, I am trying. I've been trying as hard as I can to get a current or former Scientologist on the show. I know that is one that you guys have shown a lot of interest in. And we do a lot with Mormonisms or Jehovah's Witness or things like that. But it is nearly impossible to get a former Scientologist on the show. The cult mentality is so strong on that one. But you're lucky because we have something even better than that today. We have Donald Whitney. He is an author and he is the founder and president of the Center of Biblical Spirituality. And I thought it was fascinating um, that you got your PhD from the University of the Free State in South Africa. Donald, thanks for being here. Yeah, call me Don, Cable. Uh, Caleb, it's, it's great to be with you. And sorry to disappoint your audience. I'm not a former Scientologist, <laughs> so let me make that clear. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, now, you've been an author of many books. Uh, this includes Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health, Simplify Your Spiritual Life, Finding God in Solitude, and Praying the Bible. And the reason I reached out is I have an old copy of your book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. You've got the new and updated one right there. Maybe give them a quick picture of that. Yeah. Um, and I just devoured it in a couple of days. I loved it. Mm -hmm. It's very applicable for somebody like me. I am a creature of habit, but not a creature of discipline. Um, so your focus in a lot of what you do and a lot of your speaking is on Christian discipline. Just kind of give me, like, what does that mean? Why, why is this such a big part of your ministry? Well, um, it's a bit of a answer that's hard to condense. Uh, I grew up in a Southern Baptist context. My dad was a daily Bible reader, and I grew up in a time and in a church where, and it was quite common uh, when I was growing up, where every person who came to church, even bed babies, were given these little offering envelopes. And on the front of the offering envelope, and you had one for every Sunday, you had a little box, and you gave one every Sunday. And you would put your offering in there, whether it was a penny or whether it was a check, um, and there were some, you turned it in during Sunday school, usually. And there were these check boxes with these questions. Uh, did you read your Sunday school lesson? Did you, are you staying for worship? Did you share the gospel with anyone this week? Did you read your Bible every day? Now, could that have been prone to legalism? You know, absolutely. However, have, as someone who's pastored, you know, one church 15 years, altogether about 24 years, that's information I would have found very valuable. That would not tell me everything I want to know, but it'd be some pretty good metrics. I think most pastors would be interested to know how many people in their church did read their Bible every day this week. Uh, how many people did share the gospel? That, that could give you some sense of the yeah. spiritual health of the church. But my point is, I knew every Sunday, every person who came to our church was being asked, did you read your Bible every day? That was the air we breathed. That was the expectation. I didn't know anything but that. And I'm told I started reading when I was kind of young, maybe four, and started, you know, reading the Bible. That Our church expected that. My dad did that every day. He modeled that for me. So, Caleb, I, I literally have no memory of a of a life where I didn't read the Bible every single day. So that's where I think all of this uh, actually uh, began. And I've always had a bent toward 
the practical, I would be told, you, need, you know, you should pray. Well, how do you, how do you do that? Uh, you know, we talk about fasting. How do you do that? And so I've always had that, that practical bent. And that has been reflected throughout my education, throughout my, my, my reading. And the result was spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. Mm. Um, now I used to do, and I still do like a lot of youth conferences and mm -hmm. they asked me not to do this anymore because I would get up there on stage and I would say, open the, to the book of Hezekiah. And I would watch all the youth students like flip through their Bible, trying to find it. And the youth ministers would be flipping. They're like, yeah, I know where that's at. And they would flip trying to find mm -hmm the book of Hezekiah. And eventually I knew it was time to like, let them in on it when they would go to the first couple of pages and they're doing yeah. this down the line of the books of the Bible, yeah, yeah, trying yeah. to find it. And I did that to, to like illustrate some of you have been in church for 10, 15 years since you were a kid and you can't recognize something that sounds Christian from what is an actual book of the Bible that we don't even know the books of the Bible anymore. Now, I think some youth pastors who got slightly embarrassed got mad and said that I was being mean and cruel and making them feel stupid. But do you think that we used to be really good at kind of encouraging that? I grew up Southern Baptist and we had Bible drills mm -hmm. where on Wednesday nights we would take our Bibles and, you know, we, we would do this, find this book, find this verse. Sword drills. Right? Have we really relaxed when it comes to spiritual disciplines? Oh, yeah. There's no question about that, especially with with some of the more important disciplines and the two most important are, are the intake of the word and prayer, because I, I mean, uh, goodness, a person who's been in church, a Bible believing church for most of their life ought to know the books of the Bible. I mean, yeah. I, my little girl, when she was six years old, learned the books of the Bible. Now she learned it by singing a little song, but that's okay. And yeah. I require my students. I have a required class here at Southern Seminary. And uh, it's uh, usually a first-year student class. And in it, I require all of them to, to know the books of the Bible, have a little five-point books of the Bible quiz. And yeah. some of them say, oh, do we have to, you know, get them all in, you know, correct order and spelled correctly, even those minor prophets? And, you know, I tend to say, uh, look, son, uh, you're trying to get a master of divinity degree here and a yeah. master of divinity should at least know the books of the Bible for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. mean, you, you claim to be one who's studied the Bible. You're going to preach the Bible. You don't even know what the books of the Bible are. So, and I find that I've been a professor now for, uh, 28 years and I, I find more illiteracy, biblical illiteracy, yeah. um, uh, not less. Now, is that me, part? Yeah, that, that, but let me be fair, though. In one sense, it's the best of times and worst of times. In terms of factual information, and yet on the other hand, I have students who come, a lot of my students come with, they've already read books by authors I, I didn't even know about until after seminary. And I attribute that to the, the Internet, to um you know, the availability of books online, good conferences, you know, Piper's made us aware of Edwards and, and, and people like that. So in that sense, they are way ahead uh, of where yeah. I was when I came to seminary. And I, I often tell them your faculty 
is so envious of you. You're way ahead of us on so many things, and, and that's one of them. But I will usually come back and say, we're probably ahead of you on a couple of things, and one of them is what, circling back to your direct question, is just basic Bible literacy and things like that. Now, if, uh, in, in fact, on Wednesday nights, we're, we're going through your book. And I, one of the questions uh, I asked, I said, like, if you went to school, public school, and you took math from elementary through high school, and by the end of your senior year of high school, they asked you, um, what is four times six? And you couldn't do that because every year, all you did was two plus two is four. And then next year, two plus two is four. Who failed? the teacher or you, because there should be an expectation that you have grown in the depth of your understanding of the subject, the longer you've been there. But church is one of the places where you can be such a passive listener that you can show up every week and never have a deeper knowledge of the faith. Is, is the blame equal to go on kind of the way the American church is gone as it is with just the way people are in our culture today, or is there a heavier blame that we can put somewhere else? Well, it's both, isn't it? But ultimately we have to, I think, lay most of the problems in our churches uh, on the pulpit. And I say that again, having been a pastor for, for so long, you can't expect people to do what they've never been taught to do. Right. Uh, they're not going to be, Christian financial stewards, if they've never been taught Christian financial stewardship. Uh, and you can say to people, you should read the Bible on a regular basis, uh, you know, shoot for going through it once a year. But, but Caleb, if they have never read a book in let's look to the culture. Now, if they have never been required to read a book as big as the Bible before now, yeah, they're going to say, you're right, pastor. I'm, I'm bad. I'm bad. I should read the Bible through, but I just can't. You know why they say they can't? It's because they never have read a book of such size. So it's the job of the, of the leadership to show how doable it is. Hey, look, yeah. you read three chapters a day, five on the Lord's day. You'll read the whole Bible in a year. Now who says you have to do it in a year? Maybe it takes you a year and a half or two years, but you should at least read through the Bible. Here's why. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds mm -hmm. from the mouth of God, right? How can you live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God if you've never even read every word that proceeds right. from the mouth of God? So to, to read through it on a regular basis, but show people, hey, 15 minutes a day, you can probably read through it in a year. We know from audio versions of the Bible, and most people can read faster silently than aloud. We know from audio versions, it takes about 70 or 72 hours to read through the Bible. Well, that's less time than the average American spends in front of the television or internet in, in two weeks. So most people, if they just turn off the TV and stay off the internet for just two weeks, they could read the whole Bible, not in a year, but in two yeah. weeks. So show people, you can do this. Here's how you do it. If we haven't done that in the pulpit, then we can't expect people in the pew to do it. One of the examples, uh, well, I say I, I'm a pastor. I don't know if I had told you that, but I'm, I pastor a church here in Oklahoma, Southern Baptist. And um, one of the reasons when we ask, hey, why did you come to this church? It's, it's a replant of a church that's older than the state of Oklahoma. So this church is 142 years old. Mm -hmm. And it was down to six people when we came on board and took over. Mm -hmm. 
And so we have a lot of new people and a lot of new believers come. And especially like when a young family comes, I say, well, what brought you here? They say, well, we like that you work your way through a book of the Bible at a time. So what I have found is the best attractant for us is not to be showy mm -hmm. and is not to be simple, that people will rise to the lowest standard that you set. So we set like a high standard. We expect that you can understand this. And I'm, I have no college education. I have no seminary degree. But if I can read these books and understand this, then so can you. And we try to break it down to take away the fear of what it's like to, we call the Bible, fine food, not fast food right? Like there's a difference in the way that we consume. And that's just, okay, just slow down and just think about it for a few minutes. And you'll realize, oh, this is connected to that. This makes sense. I, I get it. Uh, but oftentimes we, we treat the Bible, even if we do read it as like a hit and run, we're just, it's fast food. We just, we don't need nutrients. We just want to say that we did it. We ate today, right? It's done. Um, but I, I do, even though there is this issue and I think, uh, Correct me if, if it's changed since I've read your book. It was one in four Christians don't read their Bible at all. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, about one in four say they, they never read the Bible. So outside of hearing it preached at church, they never yeah. uh, hearing it preached and read First Timothy uh, 4.13, give yeah. attention to the public reading of Scripture. If they never hear it read at church, never hear it preached, but I mean, but honestly, Caleb, anyone who has no more hunger for the word of God than that, it, that's good reason to question their salvation. Right. Anyone with the yeah. Holy Spirit is given a hunger for the word of God. People ask me, how do you know that, you, like when you became saved, how do you know that you were saved? And one of the things was, is this book that I had grown up with that I thought was boring for whatever reason, it, it became alive. Right. Like, all of a sudden I go, oh, this is good. Yeah. And, and that was one of the ways that I knew. So I like that you said that. And it's, it's a scary thing to say. Yeah. I think one of the things you say in your book is um, what difference would it make in your life if you didn't have a Bible at all? Would it make yeah. any difference? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a good relevant question for pastors to ask their people. Yeah. Um, sheep love sheep food. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in some sense, we can see that, yeah, it's pretty bad. But there's also hope that it, it is getting better. Do you have any hope that as the culture is dividing and kind of the, the foundation of the secular culture is just, I see cracks everywhere. Do you think in hope that that's going to push people back into scripture a little bit more? I would hope so, but I'm not greatly optimistic. And maybe historical mm. example, I remember after... Uh, the September 11th attacks in New York. Yeah. I remember thinking, well, at least this is going to alert people to the dangers of Islam and to show the fruit of a false religion. Well, it wasn't long before there was a great push on tolerance of Islam that mm -hmm. uh, this does not reflect real Islam d despite jihads and, and despite uh, uh, Sharia law emphases and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it, it was astonishing to me. So there's a part of me that says, yes, things are getting so bad. People will hunger for truth um, and they'll turn more to the Bible. But I don't think apart from a great awakening that that's going to happen. I don't think that's appreciative of 
the depth of depravity. Let, let me illustrate that. I, I just finished um, a reading through the Bible and, and going through Revelation. How many times, especially as the final plagues and things are happening, things will be just unbelievably bad. And it says, yet people did not repent, but cursed mm -hmm. God. There's a time of the hundred pound hailstones, right? Hundred pound hailstones are just smashing everything, pelting people. And common sense would say, you know what? I hate it, but we can't win. <laughs> God is too yeah. great. God is too powerful. I can't win. I might as well surrender. And it says, but they cursed God in their heart. So they knew it was from God. They knew they couldn't win, but did they surrender? No, they hated him all the more. And there are things in there, at least two other times where it talks about the, the horrible plagues and the, the, you know, the intense heat from the sun and all these sorts of things. And they know it's from God. They know they can't win. They still gnash their teeth and hate God. And so, from a Christian's perspective, you'd think, won't this wake someone up? But if someone is spiritually dead, it, it takes what Edwards called a divine and supernatural light to open their eyes, to regenerate their hearts. You know, you make a really good argument because I tend to be fairly optimistic. And part of that is just required by my job to think, well, maybe they'll get it, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. if I... If I wasn't well, we optimistic, and hope, you know, we do teach. Right. Yeah. Hope. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you make me think of, you know, while Moses goes up on the mountaintop to get the Ten Commandments, even though they had seen this great miracle of God and been set free from slavery, just a little bit of wandering. Th the God of convenience was more important than the yeah. God that freed them. Yeah. Well, Caleb, and, remember where, yeah. you know, the rich story of rich man and Lazarus and mm -hmm. the rich man says, Father Abraham, you know, send Lazarus back. You know, if, if someone rises from the dead, they will believe. And he says, no, if they won't believe Moses, mm -hmm. they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. So miracles alone, you would think uh, would would cause people to believe. But it takes it takes, you know, the power of the Holy Spirit through the truth before they have a changed heart. We are often tempted to think we could just see more miracles. We'd see more people come to faith and. Jesus said, no, that's, that's actually not the case. Yeah. You know, we've debated atheists on this show and even some of them will be so bold as to say, well, even if God wrote my name in the sky every day, I still wouldn't believe. I think I was crazy or delusional. So the, the miracle, um, though it mm -hmm. can help at times, it is not a guarantee that somebody's going to have a change of heart. It's required the Holy spirit. Now, Talking about spiritual discipline, maybe define for for somebody who has no idea what we're talking about, right? Like, what do you mean spiritual discipline? Is that legalism? Because that's where mm -hmm. me, somebody, uh, uh, is terrified of legalism, right? I, I'm I'm much more. I'm not the type A. I'm the other side, free thinker, roamer. Mm -hmm. I need structure, but everything can at times feel like legalism. But I know I need discipline in my life to keep me. Um, contained and effective. Yeah. What do you mean when you say like, these are disciplines you got to have in your life? Well, I use the term discipline because first Timothy four, seven says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That's new American standard translation. I, I prefer that one, especially at this point, but other translations say train yourself 
for godliness. The old King James says, exercise thyself rather unto godliness. And that's because the Greek word here, and even, you know, people who don't know or care about Greek can hear the importance here. The, the Greek word there is gymnasia. We get our word gymnasium, gymnastics from it. So yeah. it's a sweaty word that has a smell of the gym, you know, gymnify yourself to the purpose of godliness. So train, exercise, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And we know it's not bodily discipline that's referred to there. Otherwise, bodybuilders would be the godliest people on the planet, right? But the very next verse says, bodily discipline is of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. So obviously, if it's not bodily or physical discipline that leads to godliness, what is it? It's spiritual discipline that leads to godliness. And so those habits and practices found in the Bible uh, that that promote godliness have historically been referred to as spiritual exercises or spiritual disciplines. So that's what we mean when we talk about this, this collection of, of practices in the Bible that promote godliness, things like intake of the word of God and prayer and, and worship and serving and fasting and silence and solitude and godly learning. These are the things found in the Bible that, that done rightly and with the right motivation, place us before God and, and he transforms us, makes us more like Christ. It's through these God-given disciplines we experience God, uh, by which we taste and see that the Lord is good and uh, transformation occurs and yeah. intimacy with God happens. Um, I, I think our audience um, tends to be uh, theologically minded. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm assuming, and y'all don't prove me wrong, that you at least read your Bible on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. um, most of them, I hope, uh, assume that they attend a church. And everybody I know prays. Now, they might not pray well. They might not pray deeply. Um, they, they might throw the Hail Mary, Lord help me, you know, just Jesus help prayer. Um, but the one I find of a spiritual discipline that we seem to understand the least is fasting. I remember, in fact, it was a South African missionary who uh, had come to the U.S. for some training, and his wife, uh, who was pregnant, had their child while they were here, and so they needed somebody to come and mow the yard, and I was mowing the yard, and he came out, and we started talking, and he asked me, he said, uh, I'm fasting right now because uh, I, I want to have prayer for my new child, mm -hmm. and he said, would you fast with me? And I, I had never fasted before and I had been a believer for a while. And I said, I don't really know what that is. And I tend to be reactionary hypoglycemic. If I don't eat, my blood sugar drops and I get really angry and lightheaded and confused. I was like, I don't, I don't know if I can fast. Yeah. Would you sell us on fasting and why the church needs to be more active in doing it? Yeah, I, I didn't respond to your previous question in, in whole. I didn't say anything about legalism. Would you bring us back to that yeah. in a little bit? That's sure. very important, but let me directly yeah. talk about uh, fasting. Well, fasting is mentioned more often in the Bible than something as important as baptism. About mm. 77 times by my count, uh, fasting is mentioned 75 times for baptism. And everyone knows it's in the Bible. 
uh, anyone who reads the Bible will read Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Now let's talk about how he quoted scripture to the devil. You know, so we, we know it's in there, but we, we tend to move past it. So, uh, you know, and there's 77 references uh, to it. But it, again, it's not been taught. I mean, I, I would ask your your viewers and listeners, when was the last time you heard a complete sermon on fasting? When was the last time you heard a, a Bible teaching on fasting? When was the last article uh, you came across uh, on fasting? So back to what we said earlier, you can't expect people to do what they've never been taught to do. And also usually the the we have to trace the fruit of most problems to the church eventually back to the pulpit because uh, if people have not been taught about fasting, you can't expect them to fast. And why has it not been taught? Well, back to the biblical literacy again. And also, uh, it, it's kind of hard to be an advocate in the pulpit for something you don't do. Mm. Right? If you'd never fast, it's hard to get in the pulpit and say, you guys should fast. The Bible says to fast, so you should do it when you yourself don't do it. You know, if you have half a conscience left, you, you realize what hypocrisy that would be. Well, if people aren't taught about it, if their pastors aren't modeling it, then how can we ever expect our, our people to do it? So it comes back again, lack of lack of teaching and lack of clarity. Um, but I, I, in the book, I have about 10 different types of fasts. In, in the Bible, and the one we'll call a normal fast would be where you would fast from all food, but not necessarily uh, liquids, particularly water. Uh, and some people have maybe, you know, it's common to have their coffee, daily coffee, but then they wouldn't eat food. Uh, uh, food. Maybe they'll have some fruit juice to help with that, uh, that sugar level. But another type of fast is what I refer to as a partial fast. And this is based on... Uh, the idea, you remember when Daniel and his three friends were required to eat from the king's table and, and they appealed and said, could we for 10 days just eat vegetables and drink water? So they limited their diet, but uh, didn't remove all food. And so historically what Christians have done here in what's called a partial fast is uh, they get the minimal nutritional in intake they need to not get in trouble, but they don't eat what they normally, as much as they normally would. For example, I require my students to fast, but in every class I have students who are pregnant or who get migraines if they don't eat, or they have a situation like yours, or for, they have a variety of medical reasons. It is not wise for them uh, to fast. So what we will do is have a partial fast and it tends to go in one of two directions. Either you um, limit what you eat just to the bare minimum so that you don't put yourself or an unborn child in any sort of danger. We don't wanna ever ask anyone to do anything that would cause any kind of problems or, or anything like that. There's no expectation, even when the church calls for a church-wide fast, there's no expectation that we want people to do something that could be harmful uh, to them or, or to their bodies or, or, or you know, an unborn child. Mm -hmm. So that's one way to do it. You limit 
your nutritional intake to the minimum of what you need to keep from having the problem. The other way is you, you eat just one simple food, like just bread, just rice, which again gives you the minimal nutritional intake, but you don't have the pleasure of eating. It's like, okay, you know, I'm just eating bread or just plain old rice. I, I get the minimum my body needs, but what you want is, is a longing for more because that, that serves you. So one of the least known things about fasting is your hunger serves you. You want to be hunger hungry because that is the prompt. That is the reminder for your main purpose. So again, the other big thing about fasting is if, if when your stomach growls, and your head aches and you think, man, I'm hungry. Well, your next thought will be, well, duh, I'm hungry because I'm fasting today. If your next thought is how much longer till this is over, you're doing it wrong. That's a miserable self-centered experience that somehow thinks God will be impressed if I make myself suffer. And that, that's self-righteousness and, and that is legalism. Mm -hmm. Rather, when we fast, we should have a biblical purpose in mind. Most often, but not always, it's prayer. So like your friend said, I'm fasting to pray for my baby. The way it's supposed to work is then every time your friend got hungry during the day, that was the reminder to pray for his baby. That was his main goal. That was the main purpose. The fasting just served to help him remember to do that all day long. And so if when you're fasting, you eliminate all hunger, you're, you're short circuiting the process you want, uh, to feel hunger. So uh, there's a lot more I could say it's, it's in the book and, um, I just, we'll stop there. <laughs> that's great. Uh, that's, that's pretty challenging. Um, and as somebody who speaks from the pulpit, I'm like, oh man, I'm getting hit pretty hard over here. Yeah. Well, Caleb, um, it it's not you know, yeah. one meal can be a fast, a biblical fast. Yeah, absolutely. In yeah. the book, I have references to, uh, to everything from a 40 day fast, 14 day fast, seven day fast, you know, three day fast, one day fast, partial day and fast of unspecified lengths. So technically one meal can be a fast. And I certainly wouldn't recommend people start with, with a longer uh, fast, yeah. but, um, it's in the Bible. I think I could support where Jesus expected his followers would fast. The Bible doesn't tell us how often or how long, but it, it, there is an expectation. His followers would fast. Now, when you ever, you bring up the subject, uh, I, I want to just ask real quick and kind of focus on legalism. Do you get much pushback on all these things? Are, you know, I got Jesus. I'm good. Mm -hmm. These things are legalistic and not necessary. Yeah. Do you get that pushback much? And, and, and kind of how do you deal with that? So legalism is in the Bible. It's, it's a real threat. We should be concerned about it. But frankly, Caleb, for every legalist uh, I come across, I come across 99 antinomians. Now, antinomian is a term anti. We know what that means against. And namas is a Greek word for the law. It's people who are against the law. In other words, any rule, any command in the Bible is legalism. Yeah. And that dominates the field today. The people who, as you said, are, uh, it's all in the grace. Uh, I don't want to be a legalist. Well, 
Let's go back to the command we saw in 1 Timothy 4, 7. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That's a command. God doesn't do that for you. He, by his spirit, wants you to discipline yourself. And if it's a command in the Bible, and the Bible is against legalism, then it must be doable to obey a command in the Bible without it being legalism. And one of my common illustrations on this is I would say, uh, Caleb, uh, do you ex really expect your wife to be faithful to you every day of the year? I mean, come on, isn't that legalistic? I mean, can't you give her like, you know, 10 days off a year? Do you really expect that of her? Wow, that's pretty legalistic. Well, no, you do expect her to be faithful 365 days of the year. Now, you hope she'll do it for the right motives, but you'll take even the wrong motives, right? Yeah. Uh, so obedience can be legalism, but it shouldn't be. Was Jesus fulfilled every command in the Bible. Was he legalistic? No, it all has to do with the motive. And I would argue that the strictest obedience to the absolute letter of the law of God is never obedience, is never legalism if your motive is right. Right. One of my favorite verses is Jesus says, if you love me, obey what I command. Yeah. Now, somebody with a rebellious personality like me, the words obeying command took me a long time to get around, but mm. he equates our love for him with our obedience. And so we'll say, well, I love Jesus. I just hate legalism. <laughs> well, Jesus hates legalism too. But if mm. you love Jesus, then obey the things that he commanded you to do. Right. Uh, Maybe as we kind of wrap up here, tell me a little bit about praying the Bible, because you have an entire book on that subject. So what do you mean by that? And why do you find it so beneficial? Yeah, right there. You know, Caleb, more and more, other than preaching the gospel, I think the main reason God put me on the planet is to teach people how to pray the Bible. Hmm. Praying the Bible is simply taking the words of scripture and turning them into the words of your prayers or another way to think of it. It's, it's praying about what you read in the Bible. So for example, to pray through the 23rd Psalm would look like this. You've already done some time of reading and meditating on scripture. And now you say, I want to pray. I think I'll pray from the 23rd Psalm and you read the first line. The Lord is my shepherd. You say, Lord, I thank you that you are my shepherd. You're a good shepherd. You've shepherded me all my life. You might pray something like that. But Lord, would you shepherd my family today? Guide them into the ways of God. Guard them from the ways of the world. Lead them not in the temptation. Deliver them from evil. Lord, I pray you'd make my family your sheep too. May they love you as, your, as their shepherd, as I love you as my shepherd. And then when nothing else comes to mind, you go to the next line. I shall not want. Lord, I thank you. I've never really been in want. I haven't missed many meals. And I know it pleases you. I bring my desires to you. So would you provide those finances we need for those bills, for that car or school? Or you know someone who is in want and, and you pray for them. And then nothing else comes to mind. You go to the next verse. Well, maybe you don't understand the next verse. Fine. Skip it and go to the next verse. Well, maybe you understand that verse perfectly. It just doesn't prompt anything to pray about. Fine. Go on to the next verse. And by so doing, you never run out of anything to say. But even more importantly, you never again say what I think is for many the biggest problem in prayer. You don't say the same old things about the same old things. 
because mm-hmm. you do that enough, that's boring. When prayer is boring, you don't feel like praying. If you don't feel like praying, well, it's it's hard to pray. Now, Caleb, praying about the same old things is normal because our life tends to consist pretty much of the same old things, right? Your family, your future, your finances, your your work, your church, your ministry, and and the current crisis in your life. Those things are your life. There's almost nothing in your life that's not related to your family, your future, your finances, your work, your church, and the current crisis. So, and those things don't change dramatically very often. So if on a daily basis, you're going to pray about your life, well, those six things are your life. You're going to pray about those things. The problem comes in when we tend to say the same old things about the same old things. Once you pray the Bible, you're freed from that. And you don't have to remember anything. You don't have to memorize an acrostic. You don't have to look at any notes. All you do is open your Bible, talk to God about what you see there. And you'll never again say the same old things about the same old things. And anyone can do that. Don, I really appreciate that. You're a wealth of wisdom. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show and taking your time. If people would like to get a hold of your books. Where's the best place that we can direct them? Well, my website is biblicalspirituality.org. And there I'd recommend, or of course, any place where they, they normally get books. Yeah. Amazon, wherever, wherever it is you buy your books. Uh, it's uh, Donald S. Whitney is, uh, or just Donald Whitney. You can find that on Amazon and check out his website. It's some great practical stuff for us here. And like I said, um, I enjoyed your book so much that uh, it was the very next subject that we started teaching our church on Wednesday nights. And they're they're really enjoying it. So it's benefiting me. It's benefiting the church. So there's a lot of fruit from your ministry. So thank you for all the time that it takes to to write and to do all this stuff. Thank you for shepherding uh, so many people in this direction. Uh, is there anything that you, like advice that you would like to give people in closing? Yeah. Whenever you empty the washer or dryer and you drop something on the floor, don't pick it up right there because you're likely to drop some other things and then you can pick them all up at once and throw them in. Now you weren't expecting that, were you? Well, I'm excited for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, people may not remember a thing I've said thus far, but they'll remember that when they drop that on the floor, that will come to mind. And when they do, I hope they remember, oh yeah, I should try praying the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's great. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, after I read some of your other books, we're going to have to have you on and have you talk about those too. And uh, thank you for your time. You're welcome, Caleb. Thanks for the opportunity. Mm-hmm.